Please use the self-service elevators for your trip to the rocket jet flight deck. I'll run you through. Watch this, Wendy. Our library is well stocked with priceless first editions. Only ghost stories, of course. <laughs> and now, the Magic Kingdom proudly presents in a million points of musical light. W. Welcome to the WDW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. I am your host, Lou Mangello, and this is show number 418 for the week of September 6th, 2015. I'm here to help you have the best possible Disney vacation experience and bring you a little bit of Disney magic wherever you are with this podcast, videos, blog, live broadcasts every Wednesday, special events, my books, audio tours, and more. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes and find everything else at www.radio.com. On September 14th and 15th, PBS is going to air Walt Disney and American Experience, a two-part, four-hour biography that's going to offer an unprecedented look at the life and legacy of one of America's most enduring and influential storytellers and business leaders. Featuring rare archival footage from the Disney vaults, scenes from some of the greatest films, interviews with biographers, historians, animators, and artists. It's really going to tell stories about not just his triumphs, but challenges along the way. And this week, I had a chance to sit down with the director and executive producer for a short interview, and then I'm going to share audio from a panel featuring the two that I moderated during a special live screening and preview. I'll then have the answer to our last Walt Disney World trivia question of the week, and pose a new challenge for your chance to win a Disney prize package. Then stay tuned to the end of the show as I'll have information about our upcoming meets of the month, including September's, as well as other events in Walt Disney World and on the road. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show. Before we get into the interview and segment this week, I want to quickly apologize for the quality of the audio, especially the from the panel discussion at the theater that did come directly from the theater, not as clean and as crisp as I would have liked it uh, to have been. I tried to clean it up best that I can, would ask for your patience and understanding as you listen to it, but I uh, hope you enjoy the interview and the panel. Let's go. Gala event, unusual even for Hollywood. The world premiere of Walt Disney's Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Rarely has Hollywood been so agog over the opening of a motion picture. The town's been talking about it for months. Practically the entire movie colony will be at the opening tonight, and you're going along too. So we take you to the Carthay Circle Theater for the premiere of Walt Disney's full-length Technicolor production, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. We take you now to the Carthay Circle Theater. On September 14th and the 15th, PBS will be airing an unprecedented documentary covering the life of Walt Disney, the man, not the brand. And I'm fortunate today to be sitting with the executive producer, Mark Samuels, and managing director of the American Experience, Jim Dunford. Uh, gentlemen, it's a pleasure meeting you today. We're here at lunch at the Citrus Club, getting ready for a, a, a sort of pre-screening and panel discussion tonight uh, in Winter Garden. So thank you guys for joining me today. Thanks, Thank Lou. you. Great to be here. 
So I'm smiling because you're, you know, we're talking about a four-hour documentary that probably could have been eight hours and still not cover everything. And having a limited time to be able to talk to you is, um, is a challenge in and of itself. Because that's the thing. When you cover a topic like Walt Disney, there is so much about just the person. You know, you said the, the documentary ends at the time of his passing in 1966, but there is so much. For, tell me first, how does a project like this even get started? Well, we're a history series. We're the longest-running history series on public television. This is our 27th season. So we do a range of subjects uh, from biographies to stories of events. Um, and, you know, Walt Disney's place in American history is uh, undisputed. Um, he's a natural subject for us because, uh, frankly, he transcends uh, not only cultural history, but, you know, he, he extends into economic history, business history. Uh, he has uh, influenced so many aspects of uh, American culture that uh, you know, he, his importance is unquestioned. Um, it was just a question all along of could we do it? And uh, I think that was one reason we haven't done it until recently, and I'm really glad that we have done it now that we've done it. And I think as a Disney enthusiast, I speak for a lot of people who for many years – have been waiting for a Walt Disney biography. And I think part of the challenge is, well, who is best equipped to do it, right? And the, the nice thing about it coming from PBS is that you artists are going to present it from a, a PBS, you know, point of view. Because when you do read books about Walt Disney, and there's many, whether it's the Gable book or Bob Thomas, um, you know, every author has its own unique spin and everybody sort of tells their, their stories uh, their own unique ways. Tell us about the process of putting it together because you had the cooperation not just of the Disney company and the people that worked for and with and around Walt, but the Disney family as well. Right. Well, I, the key thing for us, Lou, is um, that we have complete editorial integrity in our series. Um, we've done 16 biographies of American presidents. We've tried to find the real story at the center of those um, story, of those people. And, you know, politics is incredibly polarized, and there are lovers and haters of presidents and we have attempted to try to find not the middle ground but the place where there's agreement about a person's uh, role responsibilities motivations uh, what really made them click so when we do our biographies we really take the time to do the research look at the naysayers we look at the fanatical fans and we try to find okay who was the real subject here in this case the interesting thing is that you not only have a remarkable, a remarkably influential person, you have an enormous body of work that this person created. And we had desires early on to uh, go into that work and to explore it and to learn about it. And so that we basically, after getting started on the project, decided to expand it. And you're right, it could, could have been longer, but thank goodness we did expand it so that we could not only deal with the biography of Walt Disney's life, but also deal with the work that he created during his lifetime. I think the interesting thing, too, is that, you know, I think a lot of the inspiration from Walt Disney doesn't necessarily come from his accomplishments. It comes from the challenges. It comes from the dark times. It comes from looking at how he handled, you know, the naysayers who called it Disney's folly or the strike or the wartime. Tell us how you addressed and how important it was to address not just all the positive things, but some of the, the, the challenges that Walt uh, and his family and his company encountered. 
I mean, I think one of the things about him is that we started to really realize that, you know, he was such a creative person, but as the company grew, he moved further and further away from that. And I think that that for him was a challenge, but what it made him do is sort of continually sort of reinvent himself. So he went from, you know, Mickey Mouse shorts to full-length animated film to television to then, you know, the theme parks and the opening of Disneyland before he passed away and Disney World after. But I think that at each point there were these moments in his life, you know, that really started with his childhood that you could see him wanting to sort of play through, if you will, and, and make um, the challenges part of what he fed back into his art. And do you think, you know, there's so many of us that, you know, try and consume all the content that we can to learn all that we can about Walt, positive, negative, from wherever it comes. Do you think that in the, the years that it took to put this together and the, the interviews and going through the archives, do you think that there's still going to be things here that people are going to learn or be surprised about Walt? I mean, one of the things that Sarah Colt, who was our filmmaker on the project, um, was able to do is, you know, she was able to talk to the scholars who had spent time. You mentioned Neil Gabler earlier and a few others. But she was also able to talk to some of the people who knew Walt and who worked with Walt. And, you know, as time goes on, that group gets obviously smaller and smaller. So I think that when you start to hear the stories about, you know, what it was like to work for Walt and for many people, they come into the story when he was Uncle Walt. But in actuality, you know, Uncle Walt was a, an artist in his 20s, 30s, and 40s who was, you know, a pretty demanding boss. And we're able to hear from the people who talk about that. Um, so I think that is definitely going to be surprising to people. And then also just to step back and think about, you know, we all have a 2015 idea of what Disney is to step back and think even in 1966 when he died, you know, something like 240 million people interacted with Disney in some way or another, whether it was through the television series, whether it was through the theme park. So I think there are surprises along the whole journey. I think it's interesting that you bring up about Walt, the boss, right? Very different than the Uncle Walt that's on TV. You know, I know Dick Sherman tells a story about, you know, when Walt was coming down the, the, the halls, everybody sort of got nervous. Everybody sort of stopped. And I think that, you know, you hear stories about people like Walt Disney or Steve Jobs the same way. Very different persona that you might see on stage, but I think what you hear and you can see in the eyes of, of, a, of a Floyd Norman or Dick Sherman or whoever it may be or Rolly Crump when they talk about Walt, the reverence and the respect for they have because they knew that what Walt was doing was pulling the best that they could out of the creatives around him. I mean, Richard Sherman has a great quote at the beginning of the film where, you know, you didn't tell Walt you had a good idea. He would correct <laughs> you and say, you have an idea will tell you if it's good or not. And I think that summed up Walt as a boss. Yeah, I think also that they recognize that with that, what Walt Disney was trying to achieve either hadn't been done before or hadn't been done as well as he was trying to make it done. And that they were part of an enterprise that was dedicated towards really striving and reaching. So I think that drew them towards it. I think, you know, the way that Walt drove himself, for some people, was very, very hard to be around. And... Uh, you know, it's a. I think we all recognize that that kind of achievement uh, comes at a cost. Comes at a personal cost, and it comes at a cost of those around him. And that's part of Walt's story as well. Yeah, it, um, it it's going to be an exciting couple of days on the 14th and the 15th, and and I'm thrilled that it's not a half-hour documentary. It's not a one-hour documentary. Because you know, and I speak from a fan's perspective, that four hours is still not going to be enough. But um, we, you know, on behalf of the people that, that um, have such a respect and admiration for Walt, not just as a business person, 
but as a creative, as as a, a, a husband and a father, right, who found that family was still, you know, you never neglect your family for business. Um, I know we're very excited about it. So it's going to air September 14th and 15th. Set your DVRs on PBS stations around the country. Excellent. I look forward to uh, to the screening later on this evening. Thank you. Thanks. So, my father was my hero, but there was one other man, a man that I never met, um, that had an incredibly profound impact on my life. A man I admired and I aspired to be like, a man I never met before, but who literally changed my life forever. Um, And that man, of course, is Walt Disney. So I am incredibly honored and grateful and feel it's a privilege to be up here uh, discussing um, this groundbreaking documentary and to introduce two of the men that put this together. Uh, Mark Samuels was named executive producer of American Experience, PBS's flagship history series in 2003. Under his leadership, the series has been honored with nearly every industry award, including, get comfortable, the Peabody Primetime <laughs> Emmys, the DuPont Columbia Journalism Award, the Writers Guild Award. Let me sit down. Oscar nominations, <laughs> the Sundance Film Festival audience, and Grand... That's it? The Grand... Okay. So prior to touring WGBF, uh, he worked as an independent documentary filmmaker and executive producer for several U.S. public television stations and as a producer for the first co-production between Japanese and American television and native of Wisconsin. He is a graduate of the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Please welcome Mark Samuels. Thank you. To his left, Jim Dunford is the managing director for the American Experience. He is responsible for directing the series strategies and communications, audience development, post-production, and digital elements. He also collaborates with the editorial team on content development and strategic planning. He first joined the American Experience staff back in 2000, holding several roles, including series manager. He spent more than 25 years in public media, most recently serving as the director of board relations for WGBH in Boston. He was a graduate of Boston College. He was also on the adjunct faculty at the college teaching courses in media writing and programming for over 20 years. He's won many media awards, including a New England Emmy and served in several telly awards. He also served as quarterback of the New England Patriots. No, sorry. Yeah. Sorry. It, ends, it ended right there. Like, wait, where did that go? <laughs> uh, please give a round for Jim Dunford. <laughs> So this is exciting. Um, this is the second ch- time I've had a chance to uh, to see these, and the thing that I was worried is that you know the four-hour series isn't going to be long enough, and the time that we have to chat isn't going to be long enough. We're going to have time for questions from the audience as well. Um, so please start thinking of things as we go along. But you know, I think one of the questions that uh, probably a lot of people um, will, would think is in the, the the years of research that going into putting a, a documentary like this together. Was there anything that you found that surprised you, not about Walt the brand or Walt the business, but really about Walt the man? Mm-hmm. Um, thanks, Lou. I, first of all, I just want to thank you all for coming out tonight. I really, really appreciate it. It's a real honor for us to bring this film to one of the real epicenters of the Walt Disney story here in Central Florida and to be with WCF and Polly. And it's just a real pleasure for us to come down from Boston and uh, share this with you. We're really excited about this film. We've been working on it for three years. Uh, it's really unprecedented. 
Um, I would say that the, one of the biggest surprises that I had as we were uh, working on the film, and Sarah Colt, who's the producer of the film, and I were talking about it, was, you know, you could, there's many people in this room, I'm sure, that know an awful lot about Walt Disney, but I just knew Walt Disney from the guy who was in the living room on Sunday night when I was a kid, and I'd go in with my sisters and watch him on TV, and he was on top of the world when I saw him. You know, he had the theme park, he had the TV shows, he had the movies, and it just looked all so effortless. He was Uncle Walt, and he was so assured. And I just thought, wow, someone's had a charmed life. Someone's actually gotten to the top so easily. And what you really find out is that Walt Disney struggled and clawed his way and persevered against great obstacles within his family, within his corporation, within the industry. And he fought, fought, fought. He had a vision and a passion. He wasn't a saint, but he was someone who was totally dedicated to what he wanted to do. And he brought on a whole lot of people, and he created the most remarkable body of work in American cultural history. Yeah, I think it's interesting to see how the documentary is going to really humanize the man and, and all of his flaws and faults that we all have. Um, but, you know, why now and why choose Walt Disney um, for the American experience where you've done, you know, so many presidential documentaries and things like that in the past? So just a brief introduction, and Jim can jump here at any time. Right. American Experience uh, is in its 27th season. We're the longest-running history series on television, the most watched on television. Uh, we've done some 300 films uh, about American history, uh, biographies, events, and we've done 16 presidential biographies over that time. And they're pretty definitive pieces, um, four hours usually. And so uh, when we first conceived this film, we thought, you know, who is more important in American cultural history in the 20th century in particular than Walt Disney? We had just done a film about Henry Ford, who we felt really laid claim to being one of the pivotal figures in the 20th century, he introduced mobility and the industrial process and all that. Well, his counterpart in many ways in culture is Walt Disney, huge impact. And so we felt there was a natural subject for us and that we should give him, in a way, the presidential treatment because of that. And so in terms of, you know, we talk about humanizing Walt, um, what kind of differences will we see between Walt, the man, the father, the husband, and Walt, sort of the myth? Yeah. Sure. I mean, I think one of the things that's interesting is the project started out and it was going to be a two-hour biography um, of Walt Disney. And then through the access we were able to get to the Disney archive, we really realized that to understand the man, you really needed to sort of start to understand the work. And when you think about the body of work um, that he was responsible for, you know, Snow White, which we saw the clip from, you know, was the first of what they call the big five in Disney, which is Snow White, Pinocchio, Dumbo... Bambi and Fantasia, and those were done in a period of about six years. So I think it became really evident that we needed to be able to tell both the story of the man, but also you know the work. And for me, when you ask about surprises, he was never satisfied. You know, I think you know Mickey Mouse shorts became you know the full-length feature of Snow White, became you know the Big Five became live action, became nature documentaries, became theme parks. He just was constantly pushing forward to the next thing and not sitting back and saying like, okay, now you know, I've, I've cracked that nut, I don't need to do anything else. And I think that really was what sort of you know, drives the narrative of the story. 
Yeah, and when you undertake a project like this, obviously one that can't be told in a half hour, an hour or two, or probably couldn't even be told in four hours, I'm sure you could, could have gone on longer, you know, it was interesting for me to see through the, the clips that we saw that you didn't just get access to information, but you have stories from Dick Sherman and, and Floyd. And also, but how important was it, and how did you work, not just with the people that knew and worked for and with Walt, but you know, the, the Walt's family, and more importantly, the Disney company itself, because in order to, to tell the story, you have to have the access. Sure. I mean, I think that, you know, one of the things that Sarah Cope, the filmmaker, was able to do is she brings together a collection of voices, a lot of you saw in the clips tonight, you know, both scholars who spent a lot of time, Neil Gabler, and um, spent 10 years writing his um, biography of Walt Disney. You know, so we have people like Neil, we have people like Carmenita Higginbotham, who's an art historian from the University of Virginia. She teaches a course on Disney. And to your point, we also have lots of people who worked with Walt, Richard Sherman um, being one of the voices in the film that I love listening to his stories. But then there is that point where you have to um, kind of put, take that all together and, and create something. And the family always, even when we do presidential biographies, the role of the family is always um, sort of an interesting one. Because in many ways, they're not going to necessarily give you great insight. They're going to give you um, the message from the family. Sarah was able to spend um, some serious time, three or four hours at the Disney Family Museum with Diane, his daughter, before um, she unfortunately passed away. I think she would have been interviewed for the film otherwise. His son-in-law, Ron Miller, is in the film. But I think it's important to, it's that range. It's the scholars, it's the eyewitnesses, it's the people who work with them. But as public media journalists, how do you ensure that you retain that, that objectivity that you need? Well, it's not only objectivity, it's editorial integrity. And I say that the thing that, we, you know, I said we've been around, well, maybe I didn't say, we've been around for 27 years, we're the longest <laughs> running. So um, we've been around a long time. And, you know, a couple of people have said to me that, a oh, good question. What took you so long to make something about Walt Disney? It's a, good, it's a fair question. And one of the things that took us so long was that the Disney Corporation, uh, because Walt Disney is their namesake, is their brand, has been very controlling about everything to do with Walt Disney. Um, early on, when I was looking into this project, uh, someone told me that there are approximately 8,000 images of Walt Disney, and 7,800 plus are held by the Disney Archive in Burbank. There's very little out there. There's you know, the motion pictures and, and all this material that you see, and, and certainly we all know you can't use any of the films or any of the TV shows uh, without Disney's permission. And, um, you know, rightly so, the Disney Corporation keeps those close, very close. And they were very famous for not releasing that to third parties. And so I went out a few years ago and started a series of conversations with the Disney Corporation about the possibility of making a film. I fully expected that we would not be allowed to do it. And in the end, we were given unprecedented access. Access that didn't rely upon any editorial involvement from the Disney Corporation. They have not seen any of it. No one from, we have not provided any bit of the film to Disney. They're gonna see it on September 14th, when you see it, the entire thing. And that was the arrangement and the agreement from the beginning. Um, and that was essential to us. And I think it was only because, frankly, Lou, of um, our track record with doing 16 presidential biographies um, that I, were, I gave several of them to the Disney people I was talking with. They watched them. We thought that they were fair, and they were on some polarizing figures, Ronald Reagan, Bill Clinton. 
uh, and because of the integrity of um, public television, CBS, and that integrity begins at stations with stations like WCF here in, in Florida. And, you know, we weren't going to do a drive-by quickie biography of Walt. We were going to put in the time and spent two years making it. We weren't going to do it in a half an hour. We weren't going to do it in an hour. I'm sure in the four hours there's going to be people that are looking at it and go, how could they possibly have left out that? <laughs> and, you know, my goodness. Do you have Mark's email? <laughs> there's a lot of stuff on the cutting room floor for you in four hours. But I'm telling you, when I told CBS that we were doing four hours in Walt Disney, he said, four hours? He's not a president. I said, well, it's awfully important. So trust me on that. Well, speaking of important, you know, you know, Walt and, and Mickey, um, as Bob was saying, they're, they're synonymous and really they would describe. And interestingly enough, you know, Mickey was really born out of some of the darkest times in Walt's career. Again, a lot of things that people don't necessarily know about. But he is described uh, by a number of people as Walt's alter ego. Um, do you think, in your research, do you think that Mickey was a way to sort of humanize, um, be able to humanize Walt, or maybe for a Walt, a way for Walt to cope with his own personal demons and feelings. I mean, I think one of the things that that comes out in the film, and even in the the clip we shared earlier tonight, is is Mickey absolutely was in in many ways that you know Walt had a tough childhood. He absolutely had a tough childhood. He became incredibly family oriented by you know he was a, a good um, father to his two daughters, and I think that Mickey was. In many ways, um, he wanted people to have fun. He wanted people to enjoy things, and I think Mickey became the personification of that. I mean, it's interesting, you know, the, the one of the taglines, you know, the branding taglines that um, Disney uses is it all started with a mouse, and I think in many ways it did. What was interesting is a few weeks ago, I think someone, some of you in the audience may have been at D23, the Disney fan convention. Um, Oswald, which is the precursor, precursor to, to Mickey. Oswald's now making a comeback, so I saw lots of Oswald t-shirts and things like that. But I do think Mickey became, um, you know, as Gabler says in the film, Walt's alter ego. Yeah, I just love the fact that we got, we, like I will, like we got Oswald back in a trade for, for, uh, for a sports broadcaster, so. Um, <laughs> you know, one thing that's interesting, too, is you, you can, you saw a little bit in the clips, um, was that, Disney and his studios really started to take hold and, and be successful and really thrive, actually during the, the Depression. Mm -hmm. Is it at this point that Walt becomes um, the American icon? And do you think that in some ways what Walt was doing and the, the films and even the products he was making sort of almost helped America get through this tough time? Absolutely. You know, I think one of the things that we always look for in a, in a subject is the relationship of a subject to the greater picture of America. Because I, I think if you could define the mission of our series in any way, it's to, it's to try to form a picture of this great experiment that began in 1776 called America and try to understand what it is. And it's an evolving, dynamic picture. And for each one of our films, we try to add one more little puzzle piece to that picture. And Walt Disney has a big puzzle piece to it. He helps form sort of the ethos, um, one, one ethos, uh, idea of an ethos that, that formulates our idea of not only art and entertainment, but how we think about the world. And I think that, you know, the 1930s was a really acutely difficult time, and yet it was a time when Walt Disney thrived. And he thrived in part because 
he came out at the right time with this innovative new creature and this new entity of, of cartoons that built around Mickey Mouse. He also thrived at a time because he had this merchandise which spoke to hope and grit and determination and all those things that Americans were looking for in those hard times. And so his timing was impeccable, I think, with Walt, with Mickey Mouse. And I think, too, Walt, um, you know, he broke, he broke so many rules, not in a, re a rebellious kind of way, but an innovative kind of way. You know, when he was frustrated by the limits of technology, he just went out and invented it himself. What do you, do you, how, how do you think Walt's sort of unique style of, of tackling problems and changing the way we viewed family entertainment led to his immense popularity, not just with you know, children, but with, so, obviously, so many adults as well. I mean, one, one of the things that I think this is a good opportunity to remind folks, and when you see the film, you'll understand this better for those of you who don't know the story, is there was also behind him his brother Roy. And so for every sort of creative genius and for every innovator, there needs to be somebody who's sort of minding the store and holding the checkbook and trying to keep things running. And that was very much the role of Roy. And I think Walt was lucky that he had Roy mm -hmm. to play that role. Um, and, and another issue that I think comes up in the Walt Disney story is he was an artist, but as the company grew, he was sort of taken further and further away from um, that process. And I think he was always looking for ways to go back to that. And I think that Roy um, enabled him to do that. And then again, as I said earlier, his sort of the restless, okay, what can I do next? I think all played into that. Yeah, and, and it was a great balance that he had with his, with his brother. And he surrounded himself by the people who were the very best at what they did. Um, during uh, one of the clips that we got to see, we got a little peek into some of the, the tougher times um, with the, uh, the studio beginning to talk about union organization. Um, and it seemed like Walt was sort of unfazed, um, you know, because he was maybe so disconnected from this employee base that was growing so very rapidly. He couldn't, you know, he used to say that he was a bumblebee, he would go to flower to flower, but he couldn't be the bumblebee and touch every single person. Was he really unfazed by what was going on? And when he finally did realize it, or when it was brought to his attention, what did they start to do to resolve some of these employee complaints? Well, I, uh, Lou, actually, I, I wouldn't say that he was unfazed. I would say that he was um, befuddled by it. Um, you know, Walt Disney was able to create stories that were universal and still are universal. I mean, that's why you have every nationality on this planet showing up to Disney World and Disneyland, because his stories are touching deep, deep, deep universal. If he were to do his own story, he would find a universal in the story. And the universal is, is that his success came around to distance him from the thing that he loved most, which was touching the art that he was making, immersing himself in the storytelling and the cell construction and the music and the dancing and all that. He was fully up to his elbows in those great films in the 1930s and 19, early 1940s. And yet the company's success grew and grew and grew until, as you saw, he was a man up in the office with the bank of secretaries in front. And he'd lost touch with that. And he'd lost that spark. To be honest with you, the way the story unfolds in Sarah's film, you know, he loses that spark for a period of time, and it's really only when he leaves the Disney studio, forms WED, and starts to dream about this theme park called Disneyland, that he regains that kind of immersive, tactile sense of working on his passion. 
and they revitalize the thing. I want to actually touch on the theme parks, but just you, you talked about his, you know, universal this and universal that. Just FYI, Mark, when you're down in Central Florida talking to Disney fans, you don't say the U word at all in conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Um, what's a synonym for what's a synonym for known around the world? Global, global, <laughs> global. Uh, human. How about human? Human. Is there a human theme yes. park there? Yes. <laughs> so he uh, is speaking about um, again this radical idea of, of immersing his audience and guests in a, in a in a 3D environment where they're no longer sort of passive observers, but they are active participants in it. You know, he took a lot of inspiration from his travels and from his personal experiences, and it also sort of goes back again to his childhood growing up in small-town Missouri. How important do you think growing up in that sort of very simple Midwestern roots were to his career, and do you think that the parks were his attempt, especially Main Street USA, to sort of recreate that as an adult? Okay. Well... <laughs> He wants me to answer because I'm from the Midwest. <laughs> <laughs> anybody here from Marceline or from Missouri? Is anybody here from Missouri? Oh my God! All right, welcome. <laughs> um, you know, this, I'm sure most of you know that you know Walt Disney spent four years in a small town in Missouri, Marceline, and it was a real touchstone for his whole life. Um, he lived on a farm and. Things were relatively calm. Home wasn't always calm for Walt. He had a pretty stern father, pretty difficult. Um, you, know, you know, his father struggled actually to make a living most of the time. But this, this moment is a sort of a peaceful, serene moment in the countryside with the animals and the farm and everything. And, you know, if you look at a lot of the things that he created, you find a character in a way searching to find that moment to find that piece. Um, you know, I would say the two things that, that the film really, I think, the themes that it draws out strongly are that, like Mickey Mouse, Walt Disney considered himself a little bit of an outsider. You know, he was never really at the center of the Hollywood thing that he became a part of. It's hard to imagine how Walt Disney couldn't be at the epicenter of Hollywood power, but he never was. You know, he never got that best feature film Oscar, which he so deserved. And he never got that kind of respect. Mary Poppins gave him a little bit of respect at the end, but that's pretty late. In addition to feeling like an outsider, he, he really strongly felt that there was, um, there was a place out there that if, if you were struggling, if you were an underdog, and if you were, you know, had some odds against you, if you stuck to what you really were passionate about and you really believed in, you could find your way back to that light. And that light for him is in many ways represented by those moments in Marceline. You know, I'm sure the, um, the, the documentary is going to touch on, you know, the, the, um, the unfortunately early and, and tragic end to, to Walt's life. Can you tell us a little bit about um, Walt at that time? And, you know, how did he look at his place in, in pop culture, about his accomplishments, um, you know, his regrets, and did he maybe feel like he paid a, a, a huge personal price for creating, you know, the empire that he did? 
I mean, I'm not sure it, it's that as much as, you know, in his hospital room, you know, um, as he was dying, he was still saying to Roy, we need to do this, we need to do this, we need to do this. And certainly, you know, relatively late in his career, you know, breaking off and starting WVB, I think all of those things spoke to he was not finished. He was absolutely not finished. And I think, you know, Mark talked about um, the Mary Poppins, and I think Mary Poppins for him was the nomination, but I think he probably would have liked to win the prize. Yeah. You know, we saw the little clip of, you know, all the animals and the dwarves surrounding Snow White when she's dying. You know, Walt Disney created this, you know, this cast of thousands in this empire. You know, the final moments, it's Roy and Walt, the two brothers, you know, kid brothers dying. And Walt's pointing up at a picture of Epcot and telling Roy what needs to be done because he's got to carry on. He's got to do it. It's a really moving moment. Yeah, we, you know, people speculate all the time. What would Walt think of Epcot? And why didn't they? And so many people that, I, that I've talked to, I'm sure you did too, you know, when Walt passed and they had this vision of what Epcot was supposed to be, they didn't have everything else that was, you know, and they sort of looked at each other and said, well, what do, now what do we do? You know, because we don't have our leader. He didn't explain to us how to actually go about executing on this vision. Very true. I mean, the, you know, I don't want to give away the ending of the movie, <laughs> but I, I will say at the end, um, you know, as much as, as he had of iWorks and all these incredible artists and, you know, thousands of really talented people that, that worked for him, at the end, what you hear is one by one, people come out and say, when they heard the news, it just felt like life had something had been sucked out of life, and uh, you know, and I think something major, vision, had been, had, you know, there just wasn't anybody to step into those shoes. Never could be. In the uh, in the last clip, which made me cry because I cry every time I hear what's going to fly a kite. Um, we saw Mary Poppins, which is my favorite movie. Um, a lot of us who live here in Central Florida know that a lot of what we have here in terms of Walt Disney World came, was funded by the, the profits um, from that film. We also know, thanks to stories and saving Mr. Banks, that it was not the easiest movie in the world to make um, for, for many reasons. Um, but aside from the stories that maybe we saw in, in that, that film, which obviously was, was not a documentary type film, what can you share with us about Walt's direct involvement in terms of the making of Mary Poppins and getting that film finally made? I mean, I think it was going back to Walt as a dad. I do think at its core it was about fulfilling a promise he had made to his two young daughters. So I think from that perspective, and I think, you know, the, the clip and Carmenita sort of eloquently says it, it was definitely for him, you know, to present that family in that way. And I think that was really important to him. I think that what's interesting about... Um, that sort of moment in his career is Walt always looked at one project as a way to pay for the next project. So I think, as, as you say, you know, Mary Poppins, the success of that film allowed him to put more money into the theme parks and into the idea of Epcot. So that was always the way he worked, and it was always Roy who was saying, like, okay, you know, we've done Snow White, can we take a break? No, 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 now we're going to do Bambi. And I think that those projects always did that, and I think Mary Poppins was that project for him at that point. And I'm happy you mentioned the, the personal connection to his family. Uh, my favorite Walt quote is that a man should never neglect his family for business. And, and, I, and I'm sure the film will show, you know, as busy as Walt was running the studio and dealing with all these different issues, 
you know, he drove his daughters to school, and Saturday was Daddy's Day, and, and that's one of the things that, that I love and, and admire about him. But you, as, as the, the, the filmmakers, what did you learn, or what was sort of that aha moment or thing that you found surprising or interesting um, about Walt while making the film itself? Well, I will say first that there is that moment with Walt and his family and the footage that um, Sarah and her team were able to, to get um, out and, and really bring to light for the first time is really stunning. Like, you know, that, the, just to you know, give a shout out to her and her team, you know, that, that footage of Walt at that party that we saw in that clip, you know, is, that was from the attic of uh, Art Babbitt, and um, that, that, that kind of, there's material like that that has been seldom or never seen before. And so you do get a sense of Walt, the family man, with his kids, and he's in the pool, and he's on the train and stuff like that, and, really, and that really comes through. And it's one thing to sort of say he was that, you know, and it's another thing to sort of see it and see them, the, the sparkle in their eyes with them. Um, I would say that the, you know, the, the most surprising thing that I learned and I, I learned a lot. I didn't know that much about him, as I said beforehand. Is um, you know, I, I didn't realize how strong his passion was for um, taking a step beyond the conventional and the, no, the known. That he was never satisfied with just doing something well that had been done. It had to be that one extra step. The one extra thing that could be added that would maybe push us into new ground. So you got to you got to bring in this three-dimensional camera that we've all seen pictures of that powers up, and you got to have this multi-plane camera and be able to move through it because you got to make it feel like it's real. And you've got to get that dancing just right. So we're going to bring in the ballerina. She's going to dance for the animators. They're going to get it just right because it's not just going to be a sketch and just be approximate. It's going to be actually how they twirled and moved and how the facial expressions were going to be, and they had to be real. And, you know, now we have all these technological tools, and we can put, you know, um, equipment on people and get their animation moves just right and get it easy, and technology is kind of taking place with that. It was really one drive to get that done that made it happen in those films. I want to, um, I want to bring it back to Central Florida. Um, obviously, we were talking about, you know, his passing, his unrealized dream was not just Epcot, but his, his Florida project. Um, again, his brother comes out of sort of semi-retirement to fulfill his vision and to name it Walt Disney World. Um, we know he didn't spend a lot of time here. We have seen some clips here and there of Walt sort of walking the property very early on. But can you tell us, um, or maybe share with us, anything that you found in your research about his direct involvement or, or presence here in uh, in Central Florida. I mean, I think one of the you know challenges for the film is that it is a biography, and so it has the end date, if you will. And I think that um, you know, ending in 1966, Florida was you know just beginning. He had bought some land down here. He had done those things, but but I think you know there isn't a lot that I learned in that sort of you know, what would have come next, other than that, you know, on his hospital bed, he was telling Roy what needed to happen. Yeah, there's a nice clip in the film with, with the press conference with Walt and the governor of Florida, and the governor's pressing him for, now, when are you going to open it, and what's it going to be, and how big is it going to be, and what's it going to do here, yeah. and what's that? And Walt's like, um, uh, well, we're, we're working on that. <laughs> we'll let you know when we figure we'll it out. We'll get back to you. We'll get back to you on that. <laughs> Excellent. Um, I'd love to make sure we have some time for 
questions from the audience. Uh, I know that we have a microphone coming around. I think there's somebody out in the back, way in the back, left corner. This has really been an honor and a little great job moderating as always. I'm curious, Walt Disney, the businessman, it was not uncommon for business people in that era who had their name on the company to be authoritarian, to be benign dictators at the time. Can you talk about the company culture from a business standpoint that you uncovered? A good deal of the film deals with that, and it, it, because not, he was not only a cultural figure, but he was actually a uh, financial, financial and business figure as well, and that's what drew us to the story. You know, um, I don't know if that's his strength, really, to be honest with you. I think that comes through and everybody talks about it. He, he saw what he had created as a family. He called his animators his boys, and you know, at the time, across the industry, there was a really low glass ceiling for, ceiling for women, and he wasn't, you know, alone in keeping women down to a certain level, even though later he'll, he'll be blamed for that. Um, and you know, when it was just a handful of people, and they were creating the early stuff, you know, it probably did feel like a family. It probably did run, but he also just you know, ran the finances into the ground. And Roy had to constantly go up to San Francisco and get more and more money from Bank of America. <laughs> and they got further and further into debt. And he said, now this time they're giving us a loan and we gotta deliver the product to the distributor and we gotta get the payment, we gotta pay them back by December. And December would come and go and then March would come and go and he'd still be working on the thing and making it better and better. So in many ways, I think you gotta give Roy credit for holding this thing together until it gels. And it doesn't really gel financially for a long, long time. I mean, it's not, you know, Mickey Mouse is paying off the debts for all the things that didn't work. And then Snow White is paying off all the debts for the stuff that didn't work between Mickey and Snow White. And it's not really until the sum of the end revenues are coming in from Snow White that they're able to breathe. Yeah, and I think that goes to the point of, of Walt being the dreamer and, and Roy being the doer, exactly. um, you know, in, in throughout their entire relationship. So, and I think it's going to be interesting to, to watch, you know, we talk about Walt in business. You know, Walt as a leader, Walt as a boss, I think we're going to glean some very interesting lessons from him, but we're also going to see that, you know, Walt was probably not the easiest guy to, to work for. But he knew just how to pull the very best from the people that worked from that for him. You know, we heard Richard Sherman at the <laughs> top of the film say, you know, you'd say, I have a great idea. And Walt would say, uh, you have an idea, I'll tell you it's a great <laughs> idea. And I think that says a lot. And that's coming from a guy who we were fortunate to spend a fair amount of time with the last couple of months. He's just great 87-year-old kid. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and he considered Walt really his father, yeah. his surrogate father. And his brother, and, I mean, when he and brother came into the company, Walt, you know, was absolutely treated him like his sons. Yeah, and he, he was tough. Mm -hmm. he, was, he was tough. He was but you see the reverence and the respect they uh, have for him as and, well. And, and I think what comes out in a lot of the people who work for Walt is that they wanted to please him, and they knew that his quest for perfectionism was only making it all better. And you couldn't say no. You got you maybe said no once, and, and you never yeah. said no no yeah. again. Because he was right so often. That's the problem. <laughs> Terrible to have a boss who's right. <laughs> Got one more look. 
Thank you. When you have lived in Central Florida for 30 years, every time the ticket prices went up, more went for parking, whatever the case may be, you would hear people say, oh, Walt would be rolling over in his grave. How untrue is that, or how true is that? Is that a question for me? <laughs> I was just going to say, I, yeah. yeah I, I, well, you can't research speculation, so um, I'm not going to speculate on what Walt would roll over in his grave about. I'm sorry. I, I don't know, honestly, I mean, what he would think. I think, you know, he would, uh, you know, it, it wasn't, I, I, I don't know. He, you know, he, it, the stuff was expensive when he was. You know what I, I, I would. You know what I would tell you. I, I would tell you to go into Magic Kingdom and look at the partner statue, where he's standing there with Mickey, and he's holding his hand out. And people have speculated for years. You know what is he pointing to? Is he pointing to Epcot? Is he pointing to the future? And what he's saying to Mickey is, "Look, look at how happy all these people are." And I think that's what he would look to. Is mm. he's not the prices and the things, and he wouldn't. He hopefully Walt wouldn't pay attention to Twitter. Um, but actually, he probably would pay attention to Twitter, but hopefully it would Unless be the same it's thing. Unless from this event. Right. <laughs> right. Um, hopefully, um, he would be see, you know, he'd see tens of millions of happy guests and, and people. He was out. so transmedia. I mean, my God, he was into everything. You know, he was getting television to pay for a theme park, and he was getting the merchandise to pay for the films. I think he'd be all over social media. I oh, think he would, he'd be taking selfies in Disneyland left uh, and right, so... <laughs> Just a question, the uh, Disney social network's pretty broad, and uh, we'll be talking with our friends and family about this uh, film. Is this going to be broadcast on PBS nationwide on the 14th yes. and 15th? Yes, so it's, oh, it's broadcast nationwide on PBS September 14th and 15th, um, and then on the Wednesday, which is the 16th, the four hours will be streaming online for a limited time as well. Yeah, we're in 98% of American households. This is everywhere. Hi. Uh, you mentioned uh, access to a lot of material uh, from the Walt Disney Company. Uh, were there any specific executives or people within the Walt Disney Company that were, uh, you know, I'm curious at how high a level and who was kind of responsible at making those kind of decisions uh, because I got to believe that's got to go to the top. Sure. So um, let me just, this is a good opportunity to acknowledge um, right. one of the people in the project, Becky Klein, who is in charge of the Disney Archive, um, was really incredibly um, helpful, her and her team. And in many ways, Sarah and her team were going into the archives and um, there were things that hadn't been released and there wasn't mechanisms in place. And so Becky and her team really worked really hard to make sure that Sarah had that access and could get all of those materials out of the archives and to be able to use them. Um, I will, in answering the other part of your question, quote Becky herself, who I think when Mark first, you know, had the meetings um, at Disney Corporate to get this permission, you know, I can't for sure say how high up, you know, the, the chain it went, but Becky at D23 a few weeks ago said that, you know, what she told folks is, you know, she looked at the track record of American Experience and of PBS and said, to everyone, you know, in the company all the way up to Bob Iger that, you know, this were people who we should trust. So I feel like from that perspective, you know, it, it was a company-wide decision, but I don't know that we could, you know, I wouldn't necessarily quote Iger at this point. It, it had to be pretty high because, 
even though they're the biggest entertainment corporation in the world and they have you know all the resources you can imagine that they have, uh, they had they had never gotten stuff out to give to somebody. It's like if someone asking you, you've never really shared your attic with anybody. And you got to go up and go, now where is that box? And what am I going to do with that? And I know where it is, but I've never even gotten it, cracked it open and gotten it out. It's not, it's not like this stuff has never, ever been used before, but they didn't have a mechanism to service an, an external entity like us who had a pretty voracious appetite for photographs and motion pictures and line drawings and things like that. They just you could feel that they were doing this for the first time. These were not muscles that they had used before. I mean, one of the things that um, we heard in the process is, you know, for Sleeping Beauty, there were something like 18 three-ring binders of story notes because Walt had every story meeting transcribed um, and, and put into notes that he could refer back to. So, that, you know, that's one film in a, you know, volume of films. So there's a tremendous amount of material to go through. And the other interesting thing that we dealt with over the last couple of years, you probably remember exactly the films, I don't, but every now and again we'd say, oh, we'd hear from them, oh, well, we can't really help you with all those requests right now because we are opening whatever film is, is coming up frozen or something <laughs> like that, you know, and it'd be like, you know, the whole company kind of gets directed towards this <laughs> thing. And it's like, wait, well, wait, we gotta, we're, we're yeah, still going We still need here. to do right. <laughs> but I love the fact that next Monday, Everybody at the Disney Company, including Bob Iger, is going to be sitting on the couch in their pajamas watching PBS. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, you know, when you're watching next week, you're like, you know what? Bob Iger's sitting back watching the exact same thing at the exact same time because he hasn't seen it yet either. Hey, how you doing? Um, just a quick question. What didn't you have access to? Did you have any kind of... Uh, anything that blocked anything that you really wanted to uh, take a look at? Was there anything that they said, no, nah, we don't really want you to look at it? No. No, and I think the other thing, in addition to the Disney Company, um, the Disney Family Museum, we had the same situation with them in terms of getting access to their materials. Um, so there are other, you know, everything you see on screen isn't, doesn't necessarily belong to the Disney Company, but there wasn't anything that they said, oh, no, you know, we don't want you to look in that box. Uh, we, I don't think we would have gotten into an agreement with them if they would have walled off some stuff at the beginning. You know, we were after the whole story. Um, it's been interesting lately that so much more stuff has been coming out about Walt Disney, and you know, like the, we just recently saw him for the first time um, on screen in Saving Mr. Banks. Do you personally, either of you, feel like there's a reason for that, or did you discover anything of like there's new information coming out that hasn't been previously released, and is like what is America's draw to learn more about Walt Disney like at this time? I think that's a great question. I, I honestly don't know if there's a renewed interest in him at this moment. It, it, it feels a little bit more coincidental that Saving Mr. Banks came out and now our biography of him is coming out. I, I think maybe within the corporation that you know the experience of allowing a fictional account of Walt Disney and for to have him be played by an actor and the sky didn't fall it maybe maybe helped things a little bit, but. To be honest with you, we were already in production when Saving Mr. Banks came out, so I can't really say that it was cause and effect, but um, I don't know. I mean, you know, maybe you can 
tell me that the, that his interest in Walt Disney has waxed and waned over the year, but it, he seems pretty front and center to me all the time. I mean, the other, again, we were also in production when it happened, but when Steve Jobs died, I think a lot of people were trying to figure out who was mm. Steve Jobs like. But I, again, you know, we were already in production, saving Mr. Banks was already in production, but I think there are, to your question, a handful of people who sort of merit this constant looking at, and I think Walt Disney is, is for sure one of them. Well, I think too, you know, one thing that excites me about the film is not just learning about Walt the person, but looking at it from a, a business perspective. And I think with this incredible sense of entrepreneurship that's going on, I mean, Walt was the consummate entrepreneur. You know, he was, he was making things happen. And I think I'm interested to look and learn from it from a, a business perspective too. Because one of the things that caught me was we think, you know, uh, of Walt as obviously somebody who believed in, you know, wholeheartedly in what he did. He mortgaged everything he had on it. But I found it interesting when he was talking about Snow White, when he was describing it to the NBC reporter, he says, I hope that people aren't too disappointed. He looked at it as like, they're going to be disappointed. I hope they're not too disappointed, as opposed to, I think this is going to be a, a smashing success. Well, I hope people aren't too disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> it worked for Walt, though. <laughs> Hello? Oh, Hello. <laughs> You're live. I'm going to stand up. Okay, I just was wondering what kind of response do you think this is going to have? I mean, I am a big Walt Disney fan, and seeing it, some parts, maybe some people will be uncomfortable, especially after seeing Saving Mr. Banks, and maybe a more um, polished or sugar-coated, I guess, view of Walt, especially since it came out from the Disney company. Maybe not having him smoke, not showing a side of him where he was maybe unhappy with things or frustrated. Do you think it will be hard for some Disney fans to watch it or show a different side? That's a great question. And we've been anticipating this, and Jim, you should weigh in on this too. Mm -hmm. Yes, I do. I think that, you know, we've already experienced, and Jim has experienced firsthand just very recently, the passionate adoration that there is for Walt Disney. You know, quite justified in many ways, you know, but it's uh, it's an adoration that may you know not have a high degree of tolerance for seeing his human faults, his human side, and uh, I think there's going to be that, and I think there's also going to be the feeling that you know we didn't drive the nail into him. You know, there's so many swirling things. You know, Walt was a Nazi supporter, and Walt was a woman hater, and Walt was a this, and Walt was a that. It's kind of you know, these myths that have risen up around him, and why didn't you deal with that? And so I think the people that really, you know, don't love Walt Disney and don't love his view of, of life are, are also going to come out. But hopefully, the vast number of the millions of people that are going to see this are going to, to not have such extreme views towards Walt and find something new, something fresh. And, you know, if they love Walt Disney, that love will be reinforced and renewed, and if they're skeptical about Walt Disney, maybe they'll still retain some of that skepticism because he's a dominating, powerful figure in our psyche and in our culture. I think the strength of the film is that we do bring together a lot of, of voices and a lot of things that people know and don't know, and I think for us as a series, our track record, you know, again, as Mark said, the presidential biographies and things like that, you are never going to please everybody. Um, and, and so I think 
our goal here is to, you know, illuminate the subjects um, and not necessarily try to fit into one camp or another. And in fact, if we do fit into a camp, I think we've failed. Yeah, it's um, no other company I think has the brand loyalty, and, and clearly I think we all have such an emotional connection, not just to the brand but to the person. So my advice on Monday is to stay off Twitter. Just ignore it completely because <laughs> don't watch the live tweeting as it as it goes on. So. Um, but I think that you have a, um, a lot of Disney enthusiasts who are just excited. I know, me personally, as a, as a fan, you know, this is sort of what we've been waiting for for, for a long, long time. So, um, anybody else have any questions? Hello. Hello. Uh, after the film was completed, after all your research, what's the one thing that you guys thought were amazing about the man Walt Disney that blew you away? That prior. I'm going to answer first. It was his brother Roy. <laughs> Roy was amazing. What was I just, I, you know, it, it, when you look at Disney from a distance, and you know, it's the, you know, how did he do it? How did he do it? And I think for me, um, as as the story took shape, to see the role that Roy played, Roy was a reason why Walt was able to do what he did, and I, I certainly did not know that before this project. I like the early Walt. I like the Walt who's like risked everything in Kansas City and nothing really gelled. He, he made some advances in animation and did Laugh-A-Gram and some cool stuff there, but it basically all collapses <laughs> at his feet. And he gets on a train with, with nothing to go out to California because that's where his brother who's got tuberculosis has had to go. And, uh, you know, he shows up here in California like so many people still do show up in California with a, with a dream and a hope and he, you know, he just never gives in to defeat, never gives in to sour grapes, never gives in to not having privilege and not having money and not having the ease. He keeps fighting. And so when you look at his, the characters, the memorable characters, you see that fight, you see that grit and determination. Our Walt Disney World trivia question of the week, where I invite you to test your knowledge of Walt Disney World history or see how well you pay attention to the details, not just in what you see, but sometimes in what you hear. If you think you know the answer, you can enter by email for a chance to win a Disney prize package. Before we get to this week's question, let's go back, review last week's, and select our winner. So last week's question really wasn't about the history or details or extinct attractions, but really one of Walt Disney World's newer attractions, which is Belle's Enchanted Tales in New Fantasyland. And your question was simply to tell me, what gift do participants who get to take place in the attraction and show received as a gift at the end of the show? And as always, thanks to the hundreds of you that entered and got this one correct, because whether you have won the bookmark or not, you knew that that is what you receive, appropriately enough, from Belle at the end of the show. I took all the correct entries, randomly selected one, and this week's winner is going to get a WW Radio Magic Band cover and a copy of my 102 Ways to Save Money for and at Walt Disney World book. And last week's winner is... 
Bonnie Sandhorn. So, Bonnie, congratulations. I'll contact you. Get your package out to you right away. If you played last week and didn't win, that's okay, because here's your next chance to enter in this week's Walt Disney World Trivia Challenge. So we're talking about Walt again this week and really excited for the PBS documentary airing for the first time next week. And obviously, Walt Disney World is the ultimate realization of Walt's dream, although he never saw it completed. And as you know, the windows on Main Street USA honor those who played a very important role in the creation of Walt Disney World, as well as other contributions to the company as a whole. And while most people, pretty much almost everybody, only has one window, Walt has more. So your question this week is to tell me, how many locations can you find Walt Disney's name on Main Street USA? Now, to be clear, let's assume that Main Street USA and Walt Disney World begins from where you enter the turnstiles into where you reach the hub. So Main Street USA, for the purposes of this question, here's the recovering attorney in me coming out, is everywhere from the turnstiles all the way to the hub. So tell me, how many locations can you find Walt's name on a window and on a pane of glass on Main Street, USA? This should be interesting. Uh, You have until Sunday, September 13th at 11.59 p.m. to email your answer to contest at www.radio.com. Again, you're playing for the 102 ways to save money for an at Walt Disney World book and a very snazzy WDW Radio Magic Band cover. So good luck and have fun. That is going to do it for this week's show. Thank you so much for taking the time to tune in this and every week. I want to start off by saying thank you again to some new members of the WDW Radio Nation, including Michael Milne, Elizabeth LaRiviere, Linda Raymond, and Amy and Robert. If you want to help the show and get some cool exclusive rewards every month, including new scavenger hunts that you can take with you to the parks or play at home, you also get access to our private Facebook group. Lots of great conversations going on there. You get custom personalized WW Radio Nation Magic Band covers. There's also backpacks, t-shirts, monthly care packages from the parks. We do exclusive live video group calls and lots more. For more information, visit www.radio.com slash support. Again, completely optional, but a great way for you to help the show. And don't forget that a portion of the proceeds will go to benefit the Dream Team Project through the Make-A-Wish Foundation of America. Please also join me every Wednesday night at 7.30 p.m. Eastern for WW Radio Live. It's a live video broadcast and chat where you can be in the chat room, chat about this week's Walt Disney World news, and then I stay on for about an hour or so. You can ask me anything. Really sort of a great way just to have some fun conversation. Again, that's Wednesday, 7.30 p.m. Eastern but at www.radiolive.com or you can watch on your mobile device via the free Ustream app or Periscope. I'm at Lou Mangiello there. Speaking of at Lou Mangiello, I am at Lou Mangiello on all the social. Would love to connect with you on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest, whatever it may be. If you have a question you want answered on the show, you can email me, lou at www.radio.com or call the voicemail 407-900-9391 with a question, a comment, a low from the parks. I'll play it at the end of the show. And if you have listened to the show before, you know there's much as I love chatting with you online and through the show and social media and everything else. I think that nothing beats a handshake and the hug. And that is why I love doing live events, including our monthly Meet of the Month in Walt Disney World. The next one is going to be on September 20th outside the parks in downtown Disney slash Disney Springs. 
If you know me, if you've met me, you know that I love my food at Walt Disney World. So let's combine the meat of the month with the M-E-A-T, meat of the month, and meet over at the food truck park in Disney Springs from 4 to 6 p.m. Again, that is Sunday, September 20th. You can visit the events page at www.radio.com for more information about that. RSVP over on the Facebook page. Let us know that you're coming. Anyone and everyone is invited and welcome. Come alone. Bring the family. Come late. Stay early. What? Strike that. Reverse it. You know what I mean. We would love to, uh, to see you there. Also, don't forget about things like our Star Wars cruise on the Disney Fantasy, February 6th through the 13th. It's our ninth anniversary. Star Wars Day at Sea. It's the Super Bowl. Lots of other cool stuff going on there. Our meetup in New Orleans, Chicago the week of July 8th, the e-ticket adventure in November 2016, and lots more. Also, don't forget that we'll be there for the Walt Disney World Marathon as well as all the different marathon events. We'd love to have you be part of the running team and or take part in our Tomorrowland virtual race in October. You don't need to be a member of the team or run a real race. You're going to do it at home or at work. Everybody gets a very, very cool uh, medal as well. You can find out more about the events at the events page and also visit www.radio.com slash VR, like virtual race, VR15 in order to take part in the virtual race and run. I'll also be doing other meetups, not in Walt Disney World. I'm traveling a lot in the next few months for speaking and conferences and things like that. You can visit lumangelo.com for more information and to find out how to book me to speak at your conference, with your business, or to your school, or how I can work with you one-on-one or small mastermind groups and maybe help you turn your passion into your profession and uh, do the thing that you love and build your brand and business. Thanks, as always, to MouseFanTravel.com. Whether you're going to World, Land, any Disney destination really on the planet, you can visit them for a free no-obligation quote and incredible levels of personal service. And go to CelebrationsPress.com to get Celebrations Magazine delivered to your door or your device. And as always, my friends, and you are my friends, whether we have met yet or not, all I ask is that if you like the show, please help spread the word. Let others know about it. Tweet out that you're listening, right? Share links and come by and comment over on the Facebook page at facebook.com slash Radio. And please come by, take a minute, review the show over on iTunes. Thanks to you, we have more than a thousand five-star reviews. We'd love to keep more coming. Thanks to Ska Connor and Madman1502 for their recent five-star reviews. Search for WW Radio in the iTunes store or just visit www.radio.com slash iTunes for a link and instructions on how to do it. And finally, and most importantly, uh, my sincerest, sincerest thanks to you for taking the time to tune in for the friendship, for the support, for allowing me to share my love for Disney with you through the show and the books and the tweets and the meets and everything else in between. And because of you, um, I, I owe so much because I am leading such a very happy life. And and I want you to do the same, right? You need, I mean, I think you need to realize that you need to find happiness every day and not at the end of the road, right? It should be a way, happiness should really be a way of life and not something that you aspire to eventually get to because once you're there, the journey's over. So find a little bit of happiness every single day in yourself and maybe by helping others. And if I could ever help you, please let me know uh, how I can say thank you to you. I hope that you have the best week ever and that it only pales in comparison to the week that will follow Uh, Thank you again so very much. Have an amazing week this week. So until next time, see ya. 
Hey, Lou, this is Drew coming all the way from sunny Dallas, Texas. I just got listening to your, uh, just got done listening to the podcast and want to talk about your favorite books from Disney. And I was very thankful that you actually did mention the very first book I ever read about Disney, which was How to Be Like Walt. Um, at the time, my uh, fiance had been showing me around the different parts of, uh, the different parts in Disney World and Disneyland. There were some TV specials showing all the different parts and, and, uh, man, I'm kind of like here. The parks, the cruise ships, uh, everything about Disney on uh, a week-long thing that we're showing the different parks. And I fell in love more and more with the Disney concept and stuff like that and watched the movies for God knows how long. And uh, when you mentioned that book, it brought back some really good times to figure out, hey, you know, the innovation that this man created into what is now not just, you know, pop culture, but just everyday life nowadays here in the world we live in. It's pretty crazy. I just wanted to say thank you very much for sharing your podcast to everyone. It's a great way to listen listen and learn more about what I love the most, or at least one of the things I love the most if I'm not singing Disney covers to my little baby nephew. So anyway, Blue, thank you so much. I hope you have a wonderful day, and I'll see you in the next episode. Hello, Lou Mangiello, Darlene Yankee from West Africa, New York. I have to say, I loved the episode of 416, the D23 Expo review, that you, I think, touched every single thing that I love. I think my most favorite spot of the D23 Expo, which I was not there, um, was for the announcement of all the upcoming um, movies and the upcoming um, Two New Lands at Hollywood Studios. I'm just absolutely, like, so pumped up for 2020, 2021, whenever they open. Um, definitely coming down then to see those. Not that I'm not going down twice next year. One for the 5K in January which we are now a 127 days away for. And then you guys all, the D20, um, the WDW radio group, has full, uh, 159 days for the Star Wars cruise with Darth Vader. Ooh, perfect, after all the Star Wars land announcements. And then we have the e-ticket adventure from New York City to uh, St. Martin and um, leading off in Puerto Rico in 430 days. Oh my gosh, it's going to be a fantastic upcoming year. Have a great day, everyone. Hugs. You've got a There's a great, big, beautiful tomorrow, just a dream away. Well, it sounds pretty good. In fact, that's just the right spirit.